All right. Well, Ray and I met in college. We knew each other for about a year before we started dating. And then we dated for about two years before getting engaged. And then not quite a year after that, we got married. And during those years, we spent a lot of time together. Uh, we got to know each other pretty well. We went on dates. We cooked for each other. That stopped after we got married. I don't know why he stopped cooking after we, I mean, but we got to meet each other's parents and siblings. Uh, we spent time together talking about the future, about our family, about our careers, about ministry. We talked about finances. We talked about politics. I know. <laughs> and while we did hold hands and we did kiss, we waited for marriage, for sex. And Ray did as I requested, and he asked my dad for permission to propose to me. You should ask him about that sometime, because it's hilarious. Um, but we spent a long time falling in love before deciding on marriage. And then we took our time to plan a wedding together to set the stage for the rest of our lives. And so God also, he, he created man and woman to be together. And so I have uh, Genesis 3, 18 through 25. Did I... Did I give you the wrong one? Are you telling me I did, did the wrong one? I bet it's, I bet I was supposed to say two. I'm sorry. That's the one. So it was, yeah, he was choosing from all the animals to find a helper. He knew what was happening. This was just what, what he, how he chose to tell us what happened, right? To make it, to make it, um, to make it important that he did create a woman specifically to be with, with a man. And why did he create the woman? to be a helper because it was not good for man to be alone, right? It's interesting that everything else, it was good, it was good, it was 
Right. Everything else was good. Yeah. Yeah, that was the only thing that was not good was for man to be alone. And so we see the importance that God placed on marriage from the very beginning. And then for Jewish custom, because we're in the Old Testament, so Jewish custom for the tradition of marriage, the fathers would actually arrange the match. They would arrange the pair. The um, father of the groom would be um, would come up with or would they would negotiate an arrangement so that the father of the groom would end up paying the father of the bride for giving his daughter in marriage. You know, you can recall in the story of Abraham finding a wife for Isaac. Uh, that's in Genesis 24. And the price he paid is in verse 53. He paid with silver and gold and jewelry and clothing to find Rebekah for Isaac. And so after this bride price is agreed upon, then there was this betrothal period. They were legally married, though the girl still lived with her father, lived in her father's house. And at the wedding itself, that was where the bride was brought from her father's house to the groom. It was this really long process. But King Ahasuerus did not have that same process for falling in love and getting married. He took the advice of his servants and he gathered beautiful virgins from all over the empire to come and compete for the role of queen. And if you remember from last week, it was some 400 young ladies that were taken from their homes and brought to Susa. And it wasn't necessarily willingly. They had no hope of returning home at any point in the future. And then these young women, they spent the next year in the custody of Haggai, being given choice food and beauty, treatment, beauty treatments while they awaited their one chance with the king. And so we're going to take a look at this process a little closer today. Um, and we're going to start by reading Esther 2, 12 through 14. So we're still in the palace in Susa, but, but how long has passed since the young ladies were taken into the palace? Yeah, a year, 12 months. And what did they do in those 12 months? Spa day, right? <laughs> yeah, 
the, the language for these beauty treatments can, can suggest more than just perfume and makeup. Um, their bodies were subje subjected to like a major exfoliation, uh, uh, almost like a chemical peel type of thing to give them the fresh skin. It was all, um, that was all part of this process. Um, just as a bonus fact, because I found it really interesting, but it has nothing to really do with Esther itself. But I don't care, I'm the teacher, I get to tell you anyway. It's a bonus fact. Myrrh comes from the Comifora myra tree, but gathering the oil is done in a very interesting way. Instead of using the leaves or the flowers to extract this oil, the tree is actually pierced and the myrrh drips out, almost looking as if the tree is bleeding. So this uh, thousands of years before baby Jesus received myrrh as a gift, and it, it was one of the most desired and most expensive items in the world. Um, and so just that was the part that was interesting, but just filling in the gap. Myrrh was used in religious rituals for embalming. They used it as a cure for cancer, for leprosy, for syphilis. This is historically, not just Bible times, but um, yeah, all, I mean, in that era and beyond. Um, it's, it affected the nervous system, the immune system, and hormones. And so there, it would have done a lot of different things using it for these women. And we may think about this harem with Hege being an endless spa package with all the trimmings. But we have to remember that this was also a competition. You know, I've not watched much of the TV show, The Bachelor, but I've seen, you know, here or there, if you're switching through channels or, or but I've seen enough of the commercials. Like there were a bunch of the commercials for it on during football on Saturday. Um, so it must be at an exciting point in this, in the show. I have no idea. But just watching those commercials, you could see how these women behaved when the heart of a man was on the line. And it was not pretty. And so here we have 400 of these women competing for not just a man, but for the king. So you can imagine that the, um, the pedicures and the massages and the weren't that the whole thing wasn't just fun and games. There would have been some um, cat fighting and things like that, I'm confident. So, but anyway. <laughs> um, and, and before they went into the king, so they went through all these spa treatments, and then before they went to the king, she could take whatever it was she wanted. And so when you hear that she could take whatever she wanted, what are some of the things you think these women took with them? Jewelry, scarves, beautiful, beautiful gowns, special clothing. Yeah, they, they would take things that were maybe food, but they would take things that were tools of seduction. They were trying, their whole goal their sole purpose in going was to please the king and to get his attention. They wanted to be memorable because for them to 
not just live out the rest of their lives in the harem, he had to call them back by name. They were, then after they had their one night with the king, they are sent uh, to a second part of the harem, not to be seen again unless they were again called by name. And so they were sent to the house of, I practiced this like 10 times last night, I'm still going to butcher it, Sha'ashgaz. That's not quite right. Something like that, uh, where they became concubines. It was like they had to take the walk of shame because they could no longer live with the virgins, because they were no longer virgins. And there was no guarantee that they would be called to the king again, so it was almost like they were walking into widowhood. Now, life in the harem wasn't all that bad, or it wasn't all bad, I should say. The women could get an education. They could learn horsemanship or archery. They were able to travel. They were able to attend feasts. Um, they could acquire their own wealth, and they were allowed to manage servants and laborers. They just couldn't marry or be with another man. So this was their one shot at marriage, to meet the man, to sleep with him, and then be tossed to the side. Yeah, they would, he would use them for children, but again, he'd have to call them by name. And so it's, it's hard to know out of 400, because after so many women, you just think about it over and over and over again, they would have all blended together. I, my kids, um, my, my older two so far, uh, do theater at Mannheim Central. And so when they audition, I try to encourage them to go early in the audition process rather than be at the tail end. Because by the tail end, they're all running together. You've seen them, you've heard the same, you know, the same snippet from the, from that they're asking you to sing over and over, you know. They, it, it's that same type of idea, only a little more so here because um, Warren Wearsby says, such unbridled sensuality eventually would have so bored Ahasuerus that he was probably unable to distinguish one maiden from another. It was all about lust. It was faceless and anonymous. And as with many things, the more that he indulged, the harder it was to satisfy him. And so here we have one man using so many other humans just to satisfy his personal desires. It's, we can see it as a total abuse of power because it was, it was really the demise of 400 innocent women all for him to have physical pleasure. Then we get back to Esther. Uh, Esther 2, 15 through 18. Yes? Was the plan for, like, to wait and, like, see all 400 and then to pick one out of that? Or to just, whenever he found one, then it was over? Yes to both. Like, it, it was just whatever he wanted. And so if he was like, well, 
maybe that one, maybe not. Um, what we'll see here is that if his plan was to see everybody, it probably changed. Um, and so we don't, it, I mean, yeah, the servants were just trying to make him happy. And so they were just trying to say, look, we'll just gather you a fun woman every night. What can be worse than that, right? That has to make you happy. Uh, and, and they would have just kept going and kept bringing in more women if that was what, what was called for. Um, so, yeah, could be. Yeah, I mean, it, it is something to think about, the, but there were also a lot of soldiers who were killed in the year before, so kind of, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Esther 2, 15 through 18. So now it's Esther's turn. And like we said earlier, each girl could, could have liberty in choosing her adornment. They could ask for anything that they wanted to take with them. But Esther was content to stay with Hege's advice. Why do you think Esther did this? Yeah, she was probably very content in her own skin. Yeah. There's a level of wisdom. Haggai would have intimate knowledge of what the king prefers. Yeah. And so he's been the one carting these women to him every night, so he would know what the king likes or what he's seen a lot of and what might be different in his better part. So. Yeah. Heike's whole job was to make the king happy. And so he would have known even before any of these 400 women, women showed up what would please him. Uh, and, and so she knew that, that Haggai knew what he was talking about. And, and yeah, so she trusted him. Yeah, she it does it does tell us a lot about her character because she obeyed Mordecai and didn't tell about her her nationality, but Mordecai was her father figure, and so that made sense, right? You're gonna you're gonna obey what your what your parents tell you, but here she had a, a level of of submission to Hege submission to his wisdom and and 
and his, his advice. And, and Hege had found favor, or she had found favor with Hege, and so she knew that he wanted what was best for her as well. And so he, she knew that he wasn't trying to trick her. Um, we don't know what she took with her, but we do know she took something because it says he, she took whatever it was that he said to take. But the point is not, because the point is not that Esther abstained, it was that she was restrained. She held back, didn't do all this super elaborate. Um, and, and then there was, there's that verse, at, or that short sentence at the end of verse 15 that says, Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And so this, was, this is part of that with her character and, and with her contentment with herself. Um, and so let's read 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now, Esther wouldn't have had the New Testament and wouldn't have known, I mean, Peter didn't exist yet, right? So he, but she was, she was still living according to these verses. She wasn't noticed because of the clothes she wore, or the makeup or the jewelry that she put on. She was noticed because of her inner beauty, the way she carried herself, the way she treated others, the way she followed advice humbly, Hege was, I mean, he was an important servant in the palace, but he was a servant. And yet she did recognize that it was good to, to follow his advice. It was a, a level of humility. Yes? I almost wonder if with that sentence, when it says she was winning the favor in the eyes of all who saw her, the king must have had to have heard about her. If she's winning favor, people are going to talk. There, there is. Yeah, there is thought that that he may have heard about her. It would not have been from these other women. Uh, <laughs> there is no way that they would have said anything. But yeah, word would get around if, because Mordecai, if you remember, he walked outside the gates every day just to see how she was doing, to hear any news of her, and so talk would have been going on. Um, and, and whether the king knew it or not, the king's officials knew it, and they were going to be talking. Um, yeah, so, so it, it, word would have gotten around. Yeah. So Esther, we have to remember, was still hiding her Jewishness, was still hiding her background, was still hiding the God of the Bible, but she was still winning favor. And she was winning this favor because of God's favor. 
Um, Landon Dowden says, if God's blessing were based solely on bold obedience to God, Esther would be owed no favor at all. But God, but God bestows his favor daily on those who do not deserve it and could never earn it. So Esther may have been out of Mordecai's care, but she was never out of God's care. And God was seeking her even when we are not seeking him. So when was it that Esther went into the king? The tenth month of the seventh year of his reign. Now I'm going to pause for a moment from Esther, and we're going to learn a little bit of the Jewish calendar. I think it's page 48 in your handouts, but we're going to watch a video that hopefully will work. And I'm, my plan is to send the link to this video to Sandy so that it can be, um, you can watch it again if you need to. Because the months of the Jewish calendar are going to be much more important as we progress through the book of Esther. Jewish calendar works and how it came about. The Jewish month begins with a thin crescent. The moon grows until it is full, wanes until it cannot be seen, and eventually reappears. This cycle takes approximately 29 and a half days. Since a month needs to consist of complete days, a month in the Jewish calendar is sometimes 29 days and sometimes 30 days. The solar orbit consists of 365 and a quarter days. The difference between 12 lunar months and the solar year is almost 11 days. The Torah, however, states that Passover must be in springtime. If no adjustment were made, Passover would occur 11 days earlier each year, eventually drifting into winter, then fall, summer, and spring again. The Jewish calendar thus presents two challenges. Who determines whether a month is 29 or 30 days? How can the lunar and solar cycles be coordinated and balanced? In biblical and Mishnahic times, the Sanhedrin was responsible for determining the months and years. On the 30th day of every month, they would cross-examine witnesses who claimed to have seen the new moon. If the witnesses' accounts were corroborated, that day would be declared the first of the month. The previous month was now retroactively determined to have had only 29 days. If no testimony were accepted, the Sanhedrin would declare the following day the first of the new month. In order to balance the solar and lunar cycles, the Sanhedrin periodically inserted an extra month into a year, creating a Shana Bu'uber, or pregnant year, more commonly known as a this was the situation until the middle of the 4th century, at which time the Romans forcibly disbanded the Sanhedrin. Hillel II, the last leader of the Sanhedrin and a descendant of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, anticipated this. Therefore, before the Sanhedrin was disbanded, 
they established a fixed calendar for posterity. The Sanhedrin declared and established all future new months and leap years, granting the fixed calendar the same validity as the original system. To this day, Jews throughout the world use this sophisticated structure created by Rabbi Hillel. Throughout the centuries, the calendar has been one of the backbones of Jewish unity, as it has ensured that Jews the world over celebrate and observe the Jewish holidays on the very same day. Right, so if you look at your handout and you see that calendar, uh, the, the, the 10th month is te Tebeth. And if you go over here, you see that's December, January. And then if we read the, um, the description there, it says Tebeth, maximum cold, rainy, mountain snows. Right? I don't know about you, but on cold, wet days, it takes a lot of effort for me to stay awake at night. Right? The sun sets earlier, so it's, it's long and dark nights. Uh, and it was the wet season, so it was dreary, not a lot of sunlight. In, you know, now people, people have that seasonal affective disorder because there's not as much sunlight. That's same thing there. Not as much sunlight. People wouldn't have been quite as eager to, to do things. So it's not easy to get in the mood in that kind of weather, right? I'm just saying. But if you recall, the king has been at this every single night. And he's already needing more and more stimulation to be satisfied. So what do you think Esther was feeling when she knew it was her turn to meet the king? What was? Apprehension. Pressure. It would have been a lot of pressure. She may, there may have been a small piece of her that had some relief that it was finally here. I can totally see that. But there would have been a lot of nerves, a lot of anxiety going on. Um, what we know that she didn't know is that the future of the story depends on this night. You know, Pleasing the king was the qualification for a, sec a second summons. But Ahasuerus wasn't just pleased with Esther. He fell for her in a way that, in, he fell for her in a way no other woman had moved him. Now the ESV that we're looking at uses the word loved, and love is a very valid translation of the word, but it's not that deep, uh, devoted, pure affection it's not that same marriage love that we think about. Um, this, was, this was a sudden decision and 
I, I totally understand love at first sight. I'm going with the language here, so don't. But but there was a um, there are translations that use the word pleased or even just the word attracted. Uh, she caught his attention. He was he was in some way overwhelmed by the sight of Esther, by the the not and not just visual sight, but like the whole experience with Esther. Because Ahasuerus wasn't, um, he wasn't looking for a concubine, right? His, his goal, he was looking for a queen. Now the author is in no way claiming that the events of this passage were from human hands. It's understandably, it's at the direction of a power larger than this story. Esther was in this position and Esther drew the attention of the king because of God's providence. So just like Joseph was introduced to the court of Pharaoh and Daniel to the court of Nebuchadnezzar, Esther came to the palace for a similar purpose. I gave somebody Proverbs 16 verses 1 and 9. And Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So what do these Proverbs tell us about who was responsible for the outcome of this meeting? God. It wasn't human hands. It wasn't human hearts. It was God. Right. Yes, yes, just like Joseph, that, that God is the one that has, has granted that favor, has, has made the king take notice. And there are no details of the meeting except for one, and that is that the king personally crowned Esther queen. So Esther went from adopted to abducted, and then she advanced through the harem and was adorned by the crown. And how did King Ahasuerus announce his new queen? With a feast. So turn to page 50 in your handouts and fill in your stuff about the feast. He enjoyed feasting. And can you imagine those other 400 women showing up to this feast, right? Yeah, so who was it that was invited to the feast? The officials and the servants. And then what happened as part of this celebration? Remission of taxes, yeah, <laughs> and gave gifts, and he was very generous, right? It was kind of like Christmas, or like how we celebrate Christmas today, I should say. So were the other women invited? <laughs> Depends on your definition of servant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this, the king was so excited about finding his new queen that he, he gave a holiday. Many call it Esther's feast. Um, and it was kind of like the, the Jewish year of Jubilee where things were, gifts were given and, and taxes were forgiven and, and things like that. It was, it was a massive celebration so that everybody in the empire would feel good about this new queen. He was showing her off in a way that he couldn't show off Queen Vashti that night. And so as we go to our small groups for our discussion, um, yeah, just, just thinking about just the way that we have started with a feast and now we're back to a feast and, and just what, um, what this process will get us to next time. So 